Hey everybody, Michael Cohen here, welcoming you back to another episode of Cohen's Corner. Thank you very much for tuning in to today's show. As always, you can find episodes of this podcast available on iTunes, SoundCloud, Stitcher, Google Play, Apple Podcasts, Spotify, and just about anywhere else you listen to shows. If you happen to be listening on an Apple device, we encourage you to leave a star rating, leave a comment, and let us know what you think of the show. The more comments and reviews and ratings we get, the more exposure there is for the show, and that just makes it easier for me to find interesting guests that I think you guys will enjoy. Today's guest is former Giants offensive lineman Chris Snee. Chris was a second-round pick by the Giants in 2004, the same year that they drafted Phillip Rivers and then immediately traded him for Eli Manning. By the time he finished his career 10 years later, all with the New York Giants, he had made four Pro Bowls in 2008, 2009, 2010, and 2012. He was named first-team All-Pro in 2008 and second-team All-Pro in 2009 and 2010. He was a pillar of toughness for the organization, starting 101 consecutive regular season games as well as seven postseason games mixed in there as well that's more than six full seasons without missing a single game and to do that at the offensive line position where Chris was entrenched at right guard is really really impressive Chris is also the son-in-law of former Giants head coach Tom Coughlin, who was running the team when Chris was part of the organization. Together, they won two Super Bowls, defeating the New England Patriots both times. The first is known for the iconic David Tyree catch, as well as the fact that the Giants ended an undefeated season for the Patriots, who entered the Super Bowl 18-0. And the second is remembered more for Eli Manning's second consecutive game-winning fourth-quarter touchdown drive, aided in part by an unbelievable throw and catch with Mario Manningham down the left sideline. After Chris retired in 2013, he took a few years away from the game before jumping back in as a scout for the Jacksonville Jaguars. He also helped out coaching a little bit on the side with their offensive line and remains interested in pursuing either a coaching or scouting role again down the road as his kids grow older and he has fewer family responsibilities. Chris was a fascinating guy to talk to. I really enjoyed his candor and insight into what it's like to be part of not one but two Super Bowl winning teams. So without further ado, here is a conversation with former Giants right guard Chris Snee. Well, Chris, thank you so much for taking some time to join me. I, I really appreciate it. I know that you're spending some time with family this summer and been out on the golf course, so I thank you for carving out a little bit of time. And, you know, I, I want to start out by asking you one of the first questions that I asked former Carolina Panthers safety Mike Minter on my show last week, which is, you know, if you were a player getting ready to go to training camp and report here in the next couple of weeks, how would you feel about, you know, maybe starting to play some football with everything going on in the world related to COVID and, and all the issues that, you know, NFL teams are going to be dealing with for the next few months well i think there'd be split emotions i think you know a lot of guys would say that i think the the competitor um and myself and, and all, all athletes want to get out there and play you know i think uh you know we have an internal clock so when this time of year comes around it's, it's training camp time so um yeah you, know, you get that itch you get that sense of time you're like hey it's time to go we have a season to prepare for and uh, to be honest with you, five years, six years into retirement, I still feel that way come mid-July, August. You know, there's a greater sense of urgency just because that was the way of life, you know. Uh, on the on the other side is the, uh, you know, the concern. There is a concern for the, for, for what's going on with this with the, with the virus. And, uh, you know, especially in, in my situation, having a family when I played, um, you know, the priority and, and the 
the focus is always on, you know, my wife and children. So I think you uh, have to evaluate everything. And um, from my point of view, I, I know that I would get the support for my wife to go ahead and, and, uh, and play some football. You know, when you talk about, you know, still having that itch and things five and six and seven years out of the league, do you find yourself missing maybe the, the physical side of it more or just kind of the camaraderie of being no, around the guys? No, <laughs> not at all. I don't, I don't, I don't, uh, I don't miss Monday mornings. Uh, <laughs> yeah, I, I don't. Yeah, it's like, yeah, especially towards the, as I got older, it was just harder and harder to recover. So I don't miss that feeling. I miss the, like you alluded to, the, uh, the camaraderie, the com- you know, to, to me, it's always the uh, you know seeing if how a team gels, how they come together. You know, I'm I'm, an, I'm a, like to sit back and observe, and that was something I did when I played, just kind of get a sense of the team. And I always felt like when you leave training camp, you have a, a pulse and, you know, and a feeling on how you're going to perform that season. You know, not factoring in injuries or anything like that, but just uh, you know, how a team comes together during that time. So. Um, that that part I miss. I do. I miss running out the tunnel on game days, and I miss the satisfaction of wins. But um, the biggest thing is I just miss, you know, miss my teammates. You know, this will be, uh, you know, the second year in a row, kind of where where Eli is is not the the starting quarterback week in week out. And for somebody like you who spent your whole career with the Giants organization and came into the league with Eli, is it still is it still a little odd not to see uh, not to see number ten there under center anymore? Yeah, without a doubt. <laughs> he played there for so long, um, so long and accomplished so many great things. Um, you know, it was just a model of consistency. And what I'm saying is the consistency lying in, you know, his preparation and his availability week in and week out. So I think that was unique, um, what he offered in that sense. And then, uh, you know, just much performances. I think, uh, you know, people will say, you know, touchdowns, interceptions, wins, losses, you know, but for him, it was, uh, you know, show me what you can do in crunch time. And to me, there was no better. And truly, I, you know, I know it's a biased opinion, but that's how I feel. And uh, everyone that he played with will uh, support me on that one. Can you kind of take me back to, to draft night in 2004 when you guys entered the league? Because, you know, the Giants had the, the number four overall pick. They end up making that trade with the Chargers in the Phillip Rivers swap. And then you get taken in the second round, number 34 yep. overall. What was sort of that, that night like for you emotion-wise, figuring out that, A, you're going to be a professional football player, which I'm sure was a lifelong dream of yours, and then, B, you know, you yep. have this big quarterback swap and, and you find out who the guy of the future is going to be for your team yeah well one it was a long day you know i think uh you know i had a camera crew there in my hometown in pennsylvania uh my college teammates high school friends high school coaches uh family from you know different states um so and for me a guy that just i don't like attention at all i don't like a camera in my grill i I don't like any of that so uh it made the everything more you know it was more magnified so i think just sitting there all day you know it was the first two rounds and uh you know hours went by and i just kind of sat there like you know i was going to be the first overall pick you know watching the draft <laughs> instead of just going to do something you know so that was what mistake number one by a 22 year old but um just yeah the, the, when the phone call came through you know there was some calls late in the first round where i thought i might go here might go there and teams went in different directions so um you know when i went upstairs to a quiet spot to hear who was calling me it was uh it was the giants and 
you know, uh, my soon-to-be father-in-law on the phone and, uh, you know, so many emotions running through my mind where if you show me a video of how I was reacting, I, I, I don't recall some of it. Uh, right. Because my heart was racing and, uh, like you said, it was a, a dream come true and, um, you know, but the, the fact of who I was playing with and what, it didn't hit me until the next morning. You know, like I, uh, just a lot of emotions that for, through, through that evening and, um, you know, but when I woke up the next morning, it was when it like kind of all sunk in. And, um, you know, one, I knew that I was going to play with, with a first round quarterback. So it was obviously more pressure to protect him, but also, you know, facing some scrutiny for, you know, the relationship with Coach Coughlin. You know, speaking of that relationship with Coach Coughlin, did you allow yourself to think at all about the possibility that the Giants would be the team to draft you? There's 32 teams in the league, but, you know, you had that special connection with one. Did it, did it ever cross your mind that they'd be the one to, to dial your phone that day? Not really. And it's, it's a mistake on my part because they did need help on the offensive line. You know, but the, the thing that I just, yeah, I didn't receive much communication with them post combine. You know, I didn't wasn't brought in for a visit. I wasn't, uh, you know, in communication with them. Where I felt I was in communication with probably sixteen other teams. So, um, yeah. But now that I'm, I'm looking back on it, I mean, you know, Tom knew everything about me. So why why need why they need to bring me in? You know, I think um, the film was there, the uh, the character was there. So. And the need, more importantly, the need was there. And um, so they, they went and grabbed me. So I couldn't have been happier how it worked out. You know, you step into a, a situation where you're given that right guard spot. You earn it right away in training camp. And, and you're a starter at that yeah. spot the rest of your career. You hold it down, you know, for the for the remainder of a decade that you're with the organization. And a lot of times with quarterbacks or running backs, even receivers, and, and a little bit on defense, you hear coaches and players talk about the learning curve associated with rookies. But that conversation doesn't happen a lot with offensive linemen because it's not the most glamorous and not the most sexy position. So I'm curious, from an offensive lineman standpoint, what was the learning curve like being essentially a day one starter? You obviously played well enough to earn that spot but was your head spinning at all or were you swimming at all treading water during that first training camp i mean a little bit um you know the, the thing was the verbiage was different but i i tried to relate it to what the, you know the plays are NBC. i mean yeah, you can sugarcoat it and, and do whatever you want but i mean plays are plays so i i just kind of related it. oh this was the play i ran at bc let me convert it to this to this term that the giants use and i think you know for offensive linemen you're up you're on the line of scrimmage with you're surrounded by guys, right? You have a guy to your right, a guy to your left that can help you with the terms. So that, that eases things a little bit, you know, where it's, you're at the line of scrimmage and uh, calls need to be made. And if I made the wrong call, I had a veteran around me that could help me. So that, that was, that was big. Um, I study now. I mean, I, I don't, I, I took it pretty seriously. I think, you know, I, I wanted to start. I didn't start right away in training camp day one. Um, I was promoted uh, about, Nine days into it, after uh, we scrimmaged the Jets in Albany, which had a uh, you know the funny story about that is I was brought in. I got called in the day after with our off day. I got called in from my dorm in Albany, and I thought, man, this can't be good if I'm going to see the coach because <laughs> I really hadn't played. I hadn't play, I hadn't played well the day before. Um, so I walked in and I was about to sit, and Coach Coughlin said, "Don't sit. This won't take long." So I said, "Oh, this is definitely not good." Um, <laughs> And he's proceeded to say, uh, you know, we're going to make you starter. Uh, we're going to promote you to right guard. We're going to move you to right tackle. 
but I want you to know it wasn't because you played well. It's because the other guy played that bad. <laughs> so I uh, I did a double take, and he said, "We're done here." So I I left the office. And I was you know, I was excited, kind of, but I you know, it wasn't because I played great. I was just not as bad as the other guy. And I called my wife and told her I think I got promoted, but it doesn't feel that way. So uh, that's how I got the bump. And uh, but no, as far as the adjustment, the bigger adjustment was the, the pace of play. You know, that was that was the harder adjustment for me than the mental part. You mentioned having a guy to your right and a guy to your left. And then in that story you told, uh, you sort of, you know, foreshadowed that David Deal gets kicked out to right tackle. And then the guy to your left would be yep. center Sean O'Hara. You know, two really good players left and right of you. Um, what were some right. of the things that, that they were able to help you with early in your career? And, and how beneficial was it for you coming into a situation where the guys on either side of you were veterans as opposed to offensive linemen who come in and, and maybe there's young guys or, or guys that haven't been around too long? I think what we could start with deal. What helped me with deal was because he had just gone through his rookie year, right? So he could help me with the, uh, the acclimation part of it. And, uh, he did that. You know, he's, uh, Dave's a talker and he, you know, I'm not. So it was like, you know, um, we, he bounced, we balanced each other out, but he was so good for that because you know, anytime I had a tough day or I, you know, started to sink, you know, he's like, Hey man, I was there last year and he kind of, you know, guided me through it. And then, you know, Hera was an established veteran, right? And um, really, I kind of learned a lot of how to prepare from him. A uh, very cerebral guy and a guy that was given a lot of responsibility being the center. So um, you kind of pick, you know, put your ego. I put my ego aside and I just said, I got to get to a certain level. I need to improve in certain areas. And um, so that was, uh, that was what I got from Sean was just how to, how to prepare uh, but approach this game as my job, you know, that was, uh, kind of, and always the message I told the younger guys as I got older was, you know, the sooner you approach this as your job, the better off you'll be, you know, you're very fortunate to play it, but, uh, every year there's a new wave coming in looking to take your spot. When, when you were watching film on guys getting ready for games, you know, and I'm talking about, you know, the defensive linemen or uh, the edge rushers that, that you would be going against if some of those guys kicked inside on, on pass rushing downs. You know, I'm curious, what were some of the things that, that you would look for? What would you want to know about the defensive tackle that'll be across from you? Or if you're playing a team that, you know, kicks one of its edge rushers inside, what do you want to learn about that guy between Monday and Sunday? Uh, everyone's got tendencies. Everyone. Coaches, players, um, I had tendencies as a lineman, and I, you know, in the offseason, that w- I would spend my time studying what my tendencies were. So, you know, I had a plan of attack. I had, um, you know, some offensive linemen you can set in various ways, use your hands in various ways. Um, so I had a plan of attack for every guy I played with. I had detailed notes. Um, and to me, a lot of the defensive linemen have a pattern of rushes. So I kind of went through and uh, charted – you know, early on, late game, big third and long, what were, what were their tendencies? What were they going to go to? Um, you know, so I just, I just attacked it in that way. I said, I'm going to out prepare these guys because, I mean, more than not, I'm going against an athletic, more athletically gifted person than I was. You know, some of the teams that you were part of there in New York were renowned for the pass rush that they had on your own team. And so those would be the guys you'd go against in training camp, the guys you'd go against in practice. Was there anybody or or maybe a couple guys on the other side of the ball that that wound up being very beneficial for you in terms of of showing you kind of some of the things that that defensive linemen are trying to accomplish against your particular skill set? 
I mean, like we had so many talented guys. Um, you know, the guy I battled with early on was always Fred Robbins. Sure. Um, you know, who I don't think got enough credit for being as talented as he was. I mean, such a he's a massive guy, but uh, you know, really good with his hands. He's got you know good good quickness. Uh, he was always a tough guy for me. So we would go at each other. You know, and then, uh, you know, during training camp, we would, uh, brother-in-law, which would irritate the other guys because we would, uh, kind of go through the motions and, uh, preserve each other's bodies, you know, just to get through camp. So, uh, he was always a battle, but, as, you know, as we had so many. I mean, you go from the interior guys to Cofield and Linville, and then you got the outside guys, Chuck Strahan, OC, uh, Kiwanuka, like, there was, there was never a break, you know, that was, uh, that was what made us so good was that we were so strong on both sides of the ball. And, you know, when it was time to battle, we battled and we also took care of each other. What did you feel comfortable with from, from day one in the league? Were you a guy that from, from the day you started your first game, you knew that you could handle the bull rush pretty well? Did you feel comfortable with guys that were more speed rushers? Did you feel comfortable with twists and games? In other words, like from, from the first time you played, what did you know was already rock solid about your game that you could trust down in and down out? Uh, I always felt like, well, there was two things. I banked on my strengths, you know, and that's may have led to why my body fell apart at the end, but was, I wanted to be physically stronger than anyone I played against. Sure. Um, so that was something good to fall back on, but I think more importantly were, were my first two steps, you know, whether it's, you know, pass or run first two steps and, and the right angles and you win more than not. So, um, you know, if you get those down, I just felt like, I'm going to get my hands on you. And once I do, it's, it's over, you know, but, uh, cause I had shorter arms, you know, by league standards and, uh, you know, I had to overcome that by, you know, different tactics. You know, I, I think it's kind of, you know, interesting to, to hear guys talk about the way that they, they want to be the strongest at their particular position, because it's one thing to be able to, to say that and another thing to do it, but you certainly accomplished it and you were always well regarded in terms of your interior strength, whether it was, you know, something as simple as, you know, bench press reps at the combine to just play strength. And, and when I was researching, you know, to, to talk to you today, I was looking back at some quotes from, from Bill Belichick from one of the Super Bowls that you played against the Patriots, and he was asked a question, you know, which of the, the Giants players at any position stood out to him in that game and and you were the guy he named as as just being really strong and really sound and a guy that that didn't break down so what did it look like to become that guy in other words from a from a lifting standpoint from a training standpoint how did you become that strongest guy i think it's just kind of never listen you're gonna hit bumps and plateaus along the way right i just felt like i was never satisfied you know and whether it was lifting or gameplay or anything. And I think that's the biggest thing is you just can't be satisfied with what you've done. Um, if you do, then you're pausing for a moment and somebody's surpassing you. And I know it's a kind of a, the mindset everyone wants, you know, says they have, but I mean, you have to really be committed to that. Um, you know, so it was something where, uh, you know, often I would double up with my lips, you know, and like I said, that probably led to my body falling apart, but it also made me as strong as I was and got me 10 great years. So, um, you know, I would lift at the facility and then I would go lift with my, uh, another strength coach afterwards. So a lot of times it was, you know, commitment in that regard. And, uh, you know, it, it worked for me though. I found a routine and, and it made it work, which is what, uh, you know, everyone has to do in, in the league is find what works for you and then make it go. 
Was it beneficial for you and and for Eli to be able to room together like you did on that that rookie season where you'd be together on on road trips? And also, I think sometimes fans forget that NFL teams stay in hotels the night before home games, too. And so you guys were together before, you know, every game that rookie year. And now, granted, you didn't actually overlap too much in terms of of starting because you had an injury late in the year and Eli didn't come in as the starter to replace Kurt until late in the year. But... Um, was it beneficial, you think, for your long-term chemistry to have those Saturday nights around each other from the beginning of your careers? Uh, I don't know if it was that. I mean, honestly, I didn't want to be with a roommate okay. for that reason because because Eli wasn't playing. You know, so we were on different schedules. So you know, I wanted to come back to the room, eat, study my notes, and go to bed, and he wanted to stay up and watch uh, Ole Miss on Blues on Saturday night. You know, like, so that was, that was the difference. You know, our – our chemistry lied in, in our 04 draft class and just having to go through that rookie year, you know, the daily grind together. Um, and then as, you know, like he's, we sat next to each other on the plane for 10 years and, you know, those conversations were, you know, short, brief, but it was uh, of importance, which is kind of how we both are, right? We don't speak a lot, but when we do, it's got some weight to it, I like to think. So that's kind of how we uh, handled our day-to-day interaction as well. What was it like to go through that process late in your guys' rookie year where all of a sudden the decision is made for Eli to come in and I think it's it's week 11 against the Falcons that he starts and and so that you know sort of ushers in a new era if you will for the yep. franchise and emotionally um you know because Kurt had been your first quarterback that you'd work with and the team in general had been behind Kurt obviously and so how does that sort of play out in the locker room was it awkward at all or did guys kind of understand because Eli was that first round pick that number one choice that eventually it was going to happen anyway I'm going to be totally honest with you I didn't pay any attention gotcha you know I was hitting that I was hitting the rookie wall I had my father-in-law as the head coach uh I kept my mouth shut uh, I came in, I did my film, I, I practiced, I was out of there. I'm going to be totally honest with you. I, I didn't even think about it. I was like, I got enough stuff to worry about. I'm not worried about, you know, the quarterback situation or, you know, uh, you know, my thought was whoever's not that I'm going to block. Um, you know, when they made this, let's do it. Realize it. Got it. God, I think that's probably, you know, maybe the best way to actually look at it, because if you do start concerning yourselves with things that that don't influence, you know, exactly what you're doing and, and what you're trying to, to accomplish every week, then then I can see how that's yeah. that's the way concentration would slip a little bit. You know what I mean? Right. I guess, you know, it's the same way as if somebody you're, you're changing running backs. You know, I, I don't care who's in behind me. I'm blocking it the same way. So. Now, is there any element of chemistry, though, between an offensive lineman and the running backs? I remember when I was covering the Packers in Green Bay, I would talk about, you know, how even though you're not facing, you're not looking at the guy in the face, obviously, when he's running because you're facing forward, that that there is sometimes an element of chemistry if if the guy's more of a power guy, if you know he likes to, to cut back, if he likes to, you know, go against the grain. Does that matter at all to you? No, I think what matters for both is just trust. I think a lot of times in the run game, you need to, um, one, as an offensive lineman, trust your running back that he's going to be patient and wait for that cut. And as a running back, you need to trust your offensive lineman that he's going to ride that block long enough for you to make the cut. So uh, that, that to me is, you know, the trust is huge. And I think, uh, yeah, we had that. Uh, you know, I remember Brandon Jacobs early on. Yeah, you know, he's a massive freight train, right? So he would 
you know, I think he took out all of us offensive linemen by running up our back, you know, and then by the end, you know, he was a damn good running back. So, and, and I was, you know, very blessed to have a bunch of those guys, you know, starting with Tiki, who kind of, kind of taught me that, you know, he, as I remember as a pulling guard, you know, sometimes you're, you know, you're in space and you're going to get the better athlete, right? So, so he just kind of simplified it for me and said, I don't care if you block him or don't, just keep running. You know, run to that angle and then I'll, he goes, I'll set you up. Um, so that, that kind of helped me in that. That's really interesting um, because, you know, not all guys would, would be able to have a situation where you come into a franchise that has a Tiki Barber or a guy who is as, as accomplished as he was. And, and so, you know, I, I guess yeah. from, from a leadership standpoint, other than, um, you know, the guys that were around you on the offensive line, you know, we talked about O'Hare and how he could help you out and then deal to some extent as well, although he was younger. Who were some of the, the early veterans just in general in your locker rooms that were, were very beneficial to those, those early Giants teams that you were part of? Uh, you know, Another guy that was influential for me was Rich Soybert. Uh, you know, probably my closest friend on the team now. Um, you know, I talk to him all the time and just a guy that, you know, honestly, as a rookie, I hated him because he made my <laughs> life hell. You know, he, he was, cause he, he was hurt. You know, he was on IR. He, his job every day was to torment me. So, um, but by the end, we became pretty close and, um, you know, just a guy that you talk about just a tough guy you know, for what he had to battle back through and overcome. And sometimes I would sit back and say, you know, am I sore? Like, what is Rich dealing with? And, uh, you know, the guy's body was in pain every day, and yet he was always out there. Um, and what he overcame, you know, not many guys would. So a guy that I respected for that and just kind of helped me get through some tough days where I was kind of starting to feel sorry for myself. Um, and then I, I don't think, I mean, he gets credit for it, but Michael Strahan was probably the, you know, especially down the end, like that 07 season, you talk about a guy that when he spoke, everyone didn't say a word and, and soaked it all in. He was that guy, you know, he, and that's rare. I mean, there's always, listen, if, I, if one of your captains or leaders speaks, there's, you know, one or two young guys that drift off and don't pay attention. But when Strahan spoke, you better listen. And everyone did because they wanted to because the message is always there. Did, did you develop any kind of, um, I mean, I'm sure you did, but did you feel or, or, or notice any locker room respect starting to drift your way as, as game after game you're putting together this this unbelievable streak of consecutive starts where, you know, everybody says accountability is sometimes, or availability, excuse me, is the best ability. And, you know, for you to be able to start 101 consecutive games, you know, in the regular season and then seven playoff games as well, that's more than six full years. And I think when I started covering the league for the first time, in 2015, I think the the thing that opened my eyes the most was just seeing how how violent and how physical the game really is when you're around it day after day from July through whenever the season ends as a writer. And so, to to for a guy that played as as consecutively as you did and and to you know battle through all those kinds of things, even though you were more of a soft spoken guy, did you start to feel some respect and leadership coming your way as well? Yeah, I felt it. I felt it. Um... Big raw rock guy. I don't. I never felt that was my place, and if I did it, it would be awkward, right? So, you don't want those guys that speak just to give their own voice. So that was not me. But I do think that when uh, I did speak, it carried weight, and people, you know, appreciated that. But, um, you know, I, I, the thing that I think a lot of the younger guys got from me was just what you said. I mean, I get so annoyed when players say, "Oh, I'm not 100. percent I'm not 100." percent Nobody is. You know, it, 
you know, anyone can go out and play when they feel great. You know, it's, it's, um, you know, when you have to dig deep and your true passion for the game is, is questioned when you're, you're hurt or you, uh, you know, have some, some little bit of adversity to battle through. That's, that's when the true passion comes out. So I, I hope that if you pulled my teammates, they would, uh, say that I had a lot of passion for the game and, and love for the Giants. You know, one of the things that I learned quickly being in an NFL locker room every day was that some guys are are very much guarded when it comes to what's going on with their bodies. And for good reason, because if you're going to be in the trenches, you know, going up against a pass rusher or if there's a pass rusher that's going up against you as a lineman, the last thing you want to do is is tip off that guy that that you've got a stiff back or that one of your calf muscles is bothering you, whatever the case may be. So, you know, now Mm -hmm. that now that you're, you know, many years removed and it doesn't matter anymore, I'm curious. What was maybe one of the more difficult things that you had to play through during that consecutive start streak? Oh, I, I mean, I had something every year. I mean, I don't know where you want me to start. I tore my rotator cuff my, in preseason my rookie year. Um, so they put a harness on my left shoulder. Um, you know, but like you said, to avoid having your opponent know about it, I, I, just went, I went double harness, so it just looked like I just did that normally. Um you know, my hips toward the end were really painful. Uh, you know, what I did in 2012, you know, I made, made a Pro Bowl with a uh, labrum, massive labrum tear uh, that required a surgery in the offseason, but I pushed it off. Um, you know, I played through that and was pretty proud of my, my play, and that was year, year nine of my career. So I was, I was pretty pumped about that. Um, yeah, but it was, there's, there's always something. Like I said, you're never 100%. I was in Green Bay, one of the linemen that I, you know, had a pretty good relationship with was Brian Balaga, their right tackle for a long time. Sure. And, yeah. and Brian was a yeah. guy who, you know, unfortunately had his body break down a, a couple of times. And, and you know, that's always right. been a question mark for him. And I remember he was telling me that, you know, h- him and his wife would kind of come to this, this understanding that after every season, he was going to have to have some kind of a surgery. And if it was only one, that that was probably a good year. And if you needed multiple, then right. you know you went through a rough one. And, and I, you know, I don't know. I, maybe it's maybe it's something that, you know, isn't necessarily even um, on your guys' mind when you're playing. But it, it takes a toll on family members, I imagine, too, seeing you play hurt week after week. Because, you know, they know when you come home every night what you're dealing with and how much pain you're in. And, you know, I wonder, as, as you started to have kids, and, and obviously you know you and your wife had a great relationship and and even tom being your father-in-law was was it ever awkward you know trying to push through pain and things you know seeing how you know your loved ones would grimace or anything around you no i mean listen i was lucky right i mean my wife had been through she knows the game she's been around it long enough where she knows the only and listen when i signed up for football i knew that physically i would if you would take a beating you know with a the dilemma came in when I did have my one concussion um, and I had, that's actually what broke my starting streak. Um, And I remember when I got discharged from the hospital coming home and, you know, basically my wife said, you're not playing. So she said, forget about the streak. You know, you're going to sit this one out. And, uh, 
you know, thankfully that came at a time where there was that baseline testing. And, uh, you know, I tried to take the test to see if I had come back to my baseline and I wasn't even close to it. So I, I couldn't lie my way back on the field. Um, you know, but that was the one time where that, that came in. And to be, to be quite honest, if I got another one of those, I was done just because I knew what I had at home and I, um, you want to be around for a long time. Yeah, I mean, you know, look, I was never a high-level athlete by any means, but I remember that impact testing and that baseline testing first came about when I was playing high school sports here in Connecticut where I grew up. And and I remember yeah. at that time it was optional because it was so new. So we had the choice of whether or not we right. wanted to get the, the baseline testing. And, and there were a bunch of guys, myself included, that were young and naive and didn't really understand. And, and so we opted out of it. And it wasn't because sure. we didn't think it would be valuable, but it was because we didn't want to potentially have to miss, you know, soccer games, which was the sport that I was playing. Right. And, and now it's just right. crazy to me. And, and so, you know, I, when you look back on it now, um, you know, obviously I, I know you would still play because of all the success and everything that you have, but, um, you know, have you thought about, you know, what it would be like when, when your kids are, are old enough to want to start playing and some of them already are? Do you, do you have any sort of a, a, a moral divide when you think about the game and, and how it would influence, um, you know, your, your next in line? So, I mean, I have, you know, you said I have a soon-to-be junior. He plays, uh, and we I allow my 9-year-old to play. My 14-year-old plays hockey. Um, so, my concern is, I listen, as a parent, I'm always concerned about my kid, whether they're playing football or going out on a bike ride. So, that, that concern is always there. Um, make, I make sure that, they, you know, they know what the risks are. You know, but to me... You know, when we first moved to our town, I my oldest didn't play for a while. I went and I would watch some of the practices and get to know the coaches. And to me, if they are taught the right way, you know, you can eliminate a lot of the bad stuff that has happened in the past. Right. So that's right. the biggest thing. And, I, you know, I coach, so I said my nine-year-old plays, I coach that team. And, I, I, you know, the contact in practice is minimal. I think that there's a way you can go about things. You can't take everything out of the game, right? I mean, it's a violent game. It is. Um, but you can uh, definitely reduce it by the way you practice and the way you teach. And I think that's the biggest thing. So, um, you know, even my oldest son, when he gets out of the car before we practice your game, I tell him, see what you hit. So you got to keep your eyes up always, and that's the most important thing. Um, and as for myself, it, it put success aside. I think what, what it made me as a person um, is invaluable. You know, what it teaches these kids, you know, I, I watch it because I coach them. And, and I watch a group that, I, whatever age, they come on the field at the start of the season to the end. You know, much more mature. They understand what account they're starting to, you know, depending on the age, accountability, leadership, you know, how to deal with adversity, which is, you know, important in all phases, right, in everyone's life, is that how, how you deal with it. So, I mean, what the game teaches you is unlike no other sport, and I'll, I'll, uh, I'll stand on the table and fight anyone about that. Was part of the reason that you wanted to, you know, go into coaching at the youth level with, with your own kids, was part of that because you knew that given the high level you played at, that they would be taught correctly, whereas sometimes if it's just, you know, John Smith's dad who maybe played in high school, he might not know the proper technique and things. Was that part of your thought process? It was part of it, and the other part is I just enjoy it. You know, I enjoy I try to coach you know, I have three boys and I have a daughter, but I try to coach the boys in, in a sport a season and uh, until they get to a certain age and then you got to cut the cord, right? So I, I think that's, 
you know, where I'm at with my older two. And, uh, you know, I've got one more to do for a couple of years and then he's on his own. But I like to be there. I, I enjoy coaching. You know, if, uh, if I was a single, you know, a single guy or with young kids, I would look to get into coaching just because I, I feel like you can impact, uh, in so many ways, you know, young athletes' life. Um, but yeah, I, I do like to be out there because I like to monitor and I like to make sure things are, and I'm not saying I know everything. Trust me, sure. I, I don't. I'm always, I'm always changing, pl- you know, plays and practice, you know, things like that. But I think just, uh, I do think I have some knowledge of it and I hopefully I can help in that way. For a lot of your career there in New York, your position coach was was Pat Flaherty, and I'm wondering, was that a guy who um, was beneficial to you both in terms of your growth, obviously, on the field, but also some of the things that you just talked about when it comes to what the game teaches you? Was he somebody who helped you in, in life as well? Oh, yeah. Uh, you know, I told you Sean O'Hare taught me how to be a pro. Pat, Pat Flaherty was, you know, uh, he taught me how to be detailed, how to... Uh, you know, thoroughly, you know, case ghost, we would call it. I mean, I was prepared for every situation, every defense, every blitz, every, you know, we'd sit there and just draw up how to block plays, you know, defenses that the team hasn't even shown, you know, in four years. So I think that part of it was, uh, was great. And then post career, I mean, Pat, you know, Tom was in Jacksonville, but Pat got me to Jacksonville. Pat wanted me down there to evaluate offensive linemen. You know, it wasn't Tom, um, you know, unlike what most, most people want to say or believe, it was Pat, and Pat got me in the door, and I'm, I'm thankful for that because, you know, I found something that I enjoy doing post-playing. You know, I, I want to go back to something you said a little bit earlier, which is that by the end of a training camp, you kind of have an idea of, of what a team looks like, and, and does that team have it? Does it have that those sort of intangibles to, to maybe put together a special season if, if health ends up being on your side? And so that 2007 season, which of course ends with, you know, a Super Bowl victory, I was doing some research on that team, you know, this morning, getting ready to talk to you, and the first thing that jumped out to me was just how much the front office hit on that draft class as rookies and how, you know, by the end of the season, at some point, rookies are going to have to contribute. But, you know, Aaron Ross, Steve Smith, Jay Alford, Zach Diossi, Kevin Boss, Michael Johnson, Ahmad Bradshaw, by the end of the year, sure. the Super Bowl, every one of those guys is, is contributing in a valuable way. And there's only one other member of the draft class who I didn't mention. So when you've got seven out of eight or eight out of nine, whatever it is, you know, d- did you guys yeah. have an idea that, you know, when your rookie class is that good and with some of the strides you had made, as a veteran group already was was that something that was an indication to you that that there was potential with that group oh we saw we does yeah we definitely noticed that the young guys early on as much as we try to ignore them we noticed um so yeah you said it. i mean that was a great i know that was ernie's last draft you know you know reese gets a lot of the credit for that but that was uh you know a lot of that was mostly ernie and uh he did he did a great job before he before he left us and uh that really set us up for that year but you know the the next uh next championship as well you know that that team in 07 set an nfl record for most consecutive road wins with 11 and you know is is there something intrinsic to a team's character that that allows it to have success on the road and and if so what was it about that team that allowed you to succeed in a bunch of hostile environments week after week i think just we were mentally tough you know we did not waver with adversity you know that's uh that, and that's a credit to Coach Coughlin and all the coaches. You know, just, um, you know, we never felt like we were out of it. You know, we never felt like we, uh, listen, because no game was easy that year. If you look at our, go back and watch the games, I mean, everything was a grind. Everything was a fourth quarter win. Um, 
but that's just that was our makeup of our team and uh you know it was uh it was such a powering feeling to have you know walking out there with guys who um you know i was i use this a lot right but the, the motivation was not to let your buddy down you know um so that when when you have a a real, a real team you know that's that's the motivating factor right is uh not uh am i gonna you know mess up you know for my own uh but it's uh you know am i, am I letting my teammate down to my re- left and my right that was uh when you have that that's uh, a pretty invincible feeling you know that was a an important season for for Tom in a lot of different ways because you know he didn't necessarily have contract security beyond that season and that was one of the big storylines going into the year was that he signed a one year extension and basically had to take you guys to the playoffs if he wanted to to stick around in New York and so earlier you mentioned that when Eli came in for Kurt you didn't really notice because you just go about doing your job but given the personal relationship you had with Tom did it weigh on you at all or or, or were you cognizant of of what was going on with him from a job security standpoint you know i was aware of yeah without a doubt i mean i was uh still reading the newspaper and listening to the talk shows at that time so i mean i knew what was going on right we weren't uh we didn't have blinders on um as much as we're kind of trained to have those on um but honestly everyone's job was on the line so from my point of view as i was on my rookie deal and i'm i'm trying to get resigned eli's trying to come back i mean everyone wants to you know, that second contract. So we were, all of our jobs were on the line. So therefore we were all in together. Yeah, I, I can see how that would be the case. And, and you know, when, when you're having a, a team like that, that, you know, again, their coach has that one-year deal to kind of secure his future. And then you guys get into the playoffs and you have the opportunity as a wild card, you got to go on the road. You've you've had that success on the road all season. Um, you know, was there kind of a mindset of, um, I mean, I guess, let me think of the best way to phrase it. Were you guys thinking about making a deep run from from the day you got into the playoffs, just given the collective makeup of that bunch? Yeah, we we definitely thought we were. I mean, are you kidding me? Like once we got in, and once we you know went toe to toe with New England, and you know some guys were you know we we played right, but uh, I was honestly I was hoping for a game off. You know, I was nicked up at the time, and uh you know but then tom came in and said everyone's playing if you're you know if you're practicing you're playing so we were like all right we're playing but uh you know we had nothing on the line we were still going to tampa we were still you know we we, didn't, we weren't playing for for perfection so um yeah the minute uh, we got in we we knew we were going to make a run but you know everything along the way i mean really that dallas win once we won that you know i don't think there was no, there was no doubt in our minds we were going to green bay and win the next game you know, Dallas to us was that was a big hurdle. You know, a team that you know had all the talent in the world, right? How many Pro Bowlers and you know had beaten us twice in the regular season. So, getting that win was huge for us. Yeah, I think I think from yeah. a from a you know sort of an accomplishment standpoint, the Dallas one certainly represents getting over that hump. And then when it comes to you know obviously the elements and things, that's what everybody remembers about that NFC title game, where it's you know a negative yeah. twenty three wind chill to start the game, and you know so much is made right. of the the different colors that Tom's face turned on the sideline. Right, um, right, you know, right. I know you guys are big and 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 you've got a lot of natural warmth given your your frame and everything. But what is it like to play in a game where it's you know minus twenty three? degree wind chill at kickoff and the ground is frozen i mean i spent four years in green bay i know how cold it gets but right. what does that feel like yeah. for you guys uh you know when, when i'll be honest with you um when i was playing in the game i was okay i mean we're playing for the super bowl right i have all the adrenaline in the world and yeah i had layers uh 
of uh, loose, you know, fat on my body, right? So I, I had some insulation, but uh, it was when I came off the field. Now, I mean, I have never been that cold in my life. You know, when I and uh, you know, we have the heat, the heat blowing, right? But I mean, I'm letting the skill guys get heat. You know, it's like a, uh, right. my kids. I'd let them, I'd let them go first. So obviously, you, know, you got to let Eli and his frail frame warm up, and the fat guys <laughs> have to sit on the uh, the bench where the heaters broke. So. Uh, it was, it was cold and I, you know, I actually got sick after that game and, um, you know, had some respiratory thing for probably five days. So thankfully we had some time off after, after the game. Now I know it's sacrilege for an offensive lineman to ever wear long sleeves in a game, but if that wasn't viewed as, as taboo, would you have considered it for that game? No, no, I I just, I don't like, I mean, I have like these, I had the elbow sleeves, which is what I've always worn. But I, I don't like uh, I don't like the shirt underneath. I don't, and uh, it's hard for me. But to be honest with you, it's hard for me to imagine uh, that t- losing that tough guy image, right? Where we uh, where we do our sleeves. That's just how it was ingrained upon me. You know, I, I think one of the guys from from those two championship teams that he certainly does get a lot of credit, but I think you know, in certain respects, maybe deserves a little bit more is is Lawrence Tynes for some of the kicks that he made. And um, you know, yep. you look at that forty yep. seven yarder that he hits in ridiculous conditions, where I have to imagine he knows he's winding up to essentially kick what feels like a rock under under those types of circumstances. But you know, it wasn't just that one. He made big kicks in in San Francisco, and you know, obviously. Made oh, some yeah, kicks yeah, yeah. in the Super Bowls yeah. as well. Um, what what was he like? Was he a kind of guy that that just had steely nerves and was able to get things done in the clutch? Yeah, no question. The body of work speaks for itself. Um, you know, when Lawrence ran the field, we were all confident he was going to make it. You know, plain and simple. Even after the two misses, uh, you know, we thought he was going to go out there and going to make it. I mean, talk about the confidence from his perspective, right? I mean, he had missed two field goals, and you know. You know, kickers comes kickers sometimes get skittish, right? Uh, sure. But he elimin- he eliminated any decision making for Coach Coughlin by running on the field. So as a coach, you see your kicker trotting on the field for a forty-seven yarder after missing two. In those elements, let him kick. I mean, that's a guy that's confident that he's going to drill it. So, um, I mean, that's that's how we all felt about him. Yeah, and then obviously it sails through the uprights. You guys go to the Super Bowl, and and everybody remembers that game for two different things primarily. Yeah. One being, you know, David Tyree's catch, and then the second one being that the Patriots had come into that game undefeated and were trying to become the first team in in history to go nineteen and zero. So, you mentioned briefly earlier the importance of of that Week Seventeen game, just from a mindset standpoint, that Tom wasn't going to give you guys the week off, that you were going to go out there and compete, and you went toe to toe with that team in Week Seventeen. I think it was. 38-35 final if I remember correctly and so you know you go into this game in the Super Bowl and everybody thinks New England is going to win and you know all that but inside your locker room what were you guys thinking about this this you know dynastical Patriots team that's that's 18-0 and we all thought we were going to win there was not one guy not one coach that would hesitate on that answer you know not one guy you know, what, what, uh, what better story than be the team that stops perfection, right? I mean, uh, you know, we, we all, we, we worked too hard that whole year, you know, to let that, listen, don't get me wrong, that was a great football team, right? I mean, if we played 10 times, it'd be the seven or eight, seven times. You know, like that, that's a great football team. You know, but on that day, you know, we, 
coach just preached to us, right? I mean, we were a tough physical football team, and he just got it. That was the only way we were going to be doing. You know, they 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 don't get enough credit for how tough and physical they are. I mean, that's a that's a you know, because they, they, you know, not especially now, right, they spread the ball out. But, I mean, they are a physical football team, and that is the only way you're going to beat them, you know, by playing that way and playing smart football and not beating yourself. So, you know, we felt everything lined up for us to do that. We were made to play with that team and beat that team. You know, I was I was reading uh, this book that was written by one of my colleagues in Green Bay. It's called The Ultimate Super Bowl Book, and there's a chapter on every Super Bowl up until about, you know, seven or eight years ago. And so when I was rereading the chapter from that game, uh, the second paragraph has a quote from Steve Spagnolo, defensive coordinator for the Giants, that, that basically, I'm, I'm paraphrasing here, but he says that uh, he thought that if, if the defense held New England to 30 points or less, that they had done a good job because that's how prolific and dynamic that offense was. Now, I know that you as an offensive player have plenty to do in between series, so you're not necessarily watching always what's going on on the field. But when you caught glimpses of what that defense did, your defense did, to the Patriots' offensive line, you know, I got the stats here, and it's five sacks, eight knockdowns, five hurries, two passes batted down. What was it like to watch that defensive line do what they did to Tom Brady and that team in that game? It was fun, and you know, I spent plenty of time watching because I had such respect for that Patriot offensive line. I mean, you talk about they had three Pro Bowlers, I believe, right? I mean, they had Light, Mankins, and Copen. So yep. I think, um, you know, that that was a good offensive line and guys that, you know, as a guard, I would watch Logan Mankins because I thought he was one of the toughest SOBs in the league. So, um, yeah, to watch what, what was happening, uh, us. You know, I had been there, right? I went against that D-line. I had days like that. And sometimes you just have the day where the guy across from you has got your number. That was uh, just happened uh, happened to be the day that for us. I mean, we were our defensive line playing phenomenal, and um, yeah, Tuck Tuck really got after Mankins and and uh, the rest of history. Yeah, I mean, part of the reason why I think that defensive game plan was so successful was that with the pressure from the front four, uh, Spagnolo didn't have to blitz very much, and it was a it was a twenty six percent blitz rate in that game, yep. which for Spagnolo is pretty low by his historic standards. And so, by not having right. to blitz a lot, they were able to roll some coverage over to to Corey Webster's side and help him out with with Randy Moss, who had one of the the best seasons a receiver has ever had that year. And so, you know, I, I know you weren't going against the the D line that day, but in general, I'm sure there's been days in your career where a team's four man rush just continues to to get home. It's just their day, like you said. And and as an offensive yeah. lineman, is it demoralizing when a team doesn't have to bring five, doesn't have to bring six, doesn't have to bring seven, and they're still getting to your quarterback? Uh, yes. Short answer, yes. It's uh, very frustrating. And that's, uh, those are the days where you wish you could just hope, pray that the run game's going, right? Pray that you're uh, able to slow them down a little bit by having some success in the run game. That's, that's the only way to to kind of slow that rush down when it's when they're comp when the defensive line's confidence is sky high. You know, I, I think, um, you know, one of the things you mentioned earlier that kind of jumped out to me, you know, it was it might have been, you know, maybe the second question I asked you was 
how you know you don't think there's anybody better in clutch situations than Eli. And of course, yeah. people think about the two Super Bowls as sort of the defining moments of of those of that trait, if you will. But there were so many games where he orchestrated fourth quarter comebacks, and and you guys were oh, able to do yeah. that. And so you know, going into that that huddle when it's you know I think there's you know about a uh, three minutes left or so in the game, and and you go on this twelve play eighty three yard drive. Um, you know, you mentioned earlier going into the game, you, you guys knew you were going to win. I, I assume the confidence wouldn't waver at all in a situation where Eli had proven himself time and time again, right? Not at all. You know, get the game into the fourth quarter and find a way to win the game. That's that's the name of the game. You know, um, you know these teams are too talented, too good. You know, to think uh, you're going to come out and just step on them and finish them early on. I mean, you, you just... You battle, you battle, you get the game in the fourth quarter. Then the the, you know, the execution and the uh, you know the mentally stronger team usually prevails. Was when it would get down to no huddle situations, was Eli calling plays himself? I know some quarterbacks are afforded that freedom. Yes, yeah. When he was, yeah, when he was rolling, absolutely. And you yeah, know, it was it was yeah. You know, we we stayed you know usually stayed in the same formation and just kept going. When you have a guy who has that ability that can that can call plays and, and find ways to do things, um, you know, schematically that are just able to kind of, you know, almost outfox the opposing defense. Um, you know, what what does that say about Eli's preparation and Eli's knowledge of the game that that he was able to, you know, do those kinds of things on the fly? I mean, as a guy that you know myself, I prepared. He was always in that room. And I, you know, I would know because I would always go in the quarterback room to kind of try to mess around with his stuff, you know, whether it was, uh, <laughs> you know, drawing something, drawing something inappropriate in his playbook, or you know, drawing something on chalkboard. I was, it was always hard to find a time when Eli wasn't in there, and uh, but that was that's what made him so good. That was what made him so clutch. Is uh, you know, if you're, you're able to make you know adjustments on the fly where there's not a coach in your ear, it's because you've covered every scenario and uh, have seen every look that the defense has thrown. Did you have a view of the tie replay, or were you engaged with somebody and weren't able to see what happened downfield? I mean, do you know this answer? Is that why you're setting me up for it? Uh, the greatest play in football history, and I wasn't blogging a soul. But uh, <laughs> in my defense, as, I, as, I defended my, as I've defended myself many times and will to the day I die, mm-hmm. I was responsible for blocking Junior Seau, you know, a great football player, may rest in peace. He dropped into coverage. I turned to look. And the rest of my buddies just got beat so badly, so quickly that I couldn't help anyone. So there sure. I was standing. I was I had spun around to see what was going on, and Eli's got three guys draped on him. And you know, Eli's not the strongest guy in the world, right? I mean, he trains with like rubber bands and uh, <laughs> you know physio physio balls. He doesn't touch a weight, but uh, somehow he breaks free. So yeah, when he did that, I spun around. I saw it. Uh, wasn't engaged with anyone, uh, and. Uh, it still scratches my head how David hangs onto that ball. You know that that book I mentioned earlier, the Super Bowl book. There's a quote in it from the referee Mike Carey, who you know would have had to yeah. make a choice about whether or not Eli was, you know, what do they call it, in the grasp? I think you know if that was that was the rule that might have come into play. And the quote he gave yep. was was amazing. It says, "quote It was like a scene out of Planet Earth or National Geographic, where it's a lion jumping on the back of a wild horse. You could see Eli right. desperately trying to pull out of there, and somehow he did. Right. And 
then yeah, uh, yeah. and then and then you know your buddy O'Hara uh, suggested after the game that it might have been the first time in Eli's career he'd ever broken a tackle, which kind of goes with what you were saying about rubber bands and, <laughs> right, right. and medicine balls. Right, so right. you know it's, it's pretty right. amazing, and and you know I think honestly like the the ability to um, you know to kind of compose himself afterward, run down the field and and get ready. Um, you know, for what's next. I think that almost, you know, the awareness of that speaks to as much about Eli's character as as fighting his way out of a, a three-man sack attempt. And, you know, for for, for David to, to secure that and, and everything in front of, you know, Rodney Harrison, who's trying to rip the ball away, it's just... You know, it's it's an iconic right. moment for sure, and you know, I, I guess I'm sure you've been asked this before, but what does it feel like when you when you see that on 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 the internet or or on television when it comes up again? Is it just like, do you, can you not stop yourself from smiling? How could you not? Yeah, you know, it's like uh, when it uh, when it's on, it's it's something that we're uh, yeah, myself and my whole family's boot to, right? So I think early on in this quarantine, they, I think you know Fox replayed it, so yeah, it was, uh, I watched yeah. it. I talked about it all week and, you know, we kind of woke up and, you know, it was Super Bowl Sunday. It was kind of fun to, uh, to relive that and, uh, you know, sit there for two and a half hours and just watch, uh, watch one of the greatest games ever played that, uh, fortunately I was a part of. So, uh, just one of the many blessings in my life. You know, one of the um, one of the anecdotes that I didn't know about that game that I learned this morning was on the touchdown that Eli throws to to Plaxico. Um, you know, I guess he had the option whether you know Plaxico could have tried to run a slant or could have run the fade. And I right. guess the night before the game, Kevin Gilbride, the offensive coordinator, kind of got with with Eli and Plaxico and said, "Hey, remember, if you're matched up against Ellis Hobbs, the corner for the Patriots, he's pretty good at breaking up slant passes. He's broken up a few of them. So if we get that play." It's going to have to be the right. fade, and sure enough, it was the fade, and and it's the touchdown, and and you know, I, I, yep. what did it feel like when you know that happened, and you know, obviously Tom's got four heaves left at the end of the game, but um, you know, right. at, at that moment, did it feel like the uh, the destiny that you guys were were having in mind at the beginning of the playoffs that this was that it was done, that that was the score that was going to win you the title? I mean, listen, after that catch, how could you? How could it not script any better? I mean, we're going to waste David Tyree's catch, you know. Um, but yeah, with the matchup there and, and, and the sluggo route by Flax, uh, you know, one, it seemed like, yeah, well, I was blocking someone on that play for the record. So that was uh, a <laughs> plus for me. But uh, I think, you know, that uh, it seemed like forever for the ball to get down. You know, I, I would have uh, liked for that to happen a little bit sooner. But uh, yeah, there was no way we were losing that game. But no, I sitting there as a player with 35 seconds left uh, and Tom Brady on the other side and they had three timeouts, I was not uh, exactly comfortable for sure. Yeah, I can understand that. I can understand that. But of course, obviously, it uh, it ends up going your way and there's, you know, I mentioned earlier that all those rookies contribute and Jay Alford makes one of the biggest plays on that last drive by just, you know, drilling Brady yep. to uh, to help secure the win. And, you know, I think one of the things that, that I've, I've learned from talking to guys that played for the Giants or coached for the Giants over the years is that, you know, because New York is such a special place in terms of the type of people there and the fans that it really does mean a little bit more to, to have success in that city and in that tri-state area because the people appreciate yep. it so much. And I'm wondering what you kind of remember about you know the celebration period the next couple of weeks was it was the fan support um you know just a, as special as as anything you could have imagined oh it was great i mean that ticker tape parade i've never seen anything like it and uh again blessed to have done it twice but uh you know the the side streets you know 15 rows deep and 
um, you know, confetti flying everywhere, but then the welcome back to Giant Stadium with all the fans in the stadium, um, just awesome. And as a, been out for a couple of years, but I, you know, I love doing a signing or just going somewhere and, you know, um, I, I love the interaction with the fans and just kind of reliving that, you know, um, you know, whether it's a minute or five minutes, just, uh, just talking about that with the fans who you can sense, you know, really appreciate what you did and, uh, what, what you sacrificed over your course of your career. You know, those are the fans I love talking to. So I'm very thankful that there's so many of those in New York. Did you guys have the feeling a few years later in 2011 that something similar was possible? Did you have that training camp vibe that it was another quality team that, again, if health goes your way, you could you could do something with it? Same exact feeling. Same exact feeling. Um, and that was eerie. It really was. And then, especially down the stretch, and it was. But it was. I sensed it, and I could. I knew later on that other guys sensed it because we talked about it. But it was something we didn't talk about at the time. You know, it was almost like guys who had been through it in 07 and were still there. You know, we had that same vibe, and, and when we sat down after we won, we were like, everyone had just then came out and said it, but we were afraid to talk about it at the time because we didn't want to jinx anything. But, uh, yeah, I mean, that was that was uh, just a similar team. And, and, you know, we had a tough year on the offensive line. We weren't as sure. – we were not dominant by any stretch. I mean, what Eli did in San Francisco uh, without our help, you know, was unbelievable, right? Um yeah, but we performed better than when it counted. But uh, so our makeup, you know, was a little different in that regard. But the the chemistry and the bond and the, and the love for one another was was the same. Yeah, that that playoff run. There was a stat I saw this morning that kind of blew me out of the water. In that the three games that you guys played against Atlanta, Green Bay, and New England, so the three teams with the best quarterbacks in that playoff run. You're talking Matt Ryan, Aaron Rodgers, Tom Brady, and from a receiver standpoint, yep. you're talking Roddy White, Julio Jones, Greg Jennings, Jordy Nelson, Wes Welker. In those three games yep. against all those guys, the longest completion allowed by the defense was 21 yards. And that, to me, was just unbelievable to read that this morning. Wow, that's incredible. I had no idea. And, and, that's, that's very impressive. And that defense, too. Like, they, w- they went through some, some trials and tribulations throughout the year. And, and I, you know, every article yeah. you read talks about the importance of, of Chase Blackburn coming back and being signed and, and brought back to that defense. Was he, was he one of those kind of locker room guys that we talked about earlier that, you know, just when his presence is there, it, it kind of commands some respect in the room? Absolutely. And uh, if you would have asked me then what Chase was going to do when he was done playing, I'd say he'd be a hell of a football coach, and he is right now. I think, uh, yeah, Chase was uh, fits that mold perfectly. Was, um, you know, you talked about the eerie feeling of, of kind of, you know, sensing the same kinds of traits about that 11 team as you did in 07 um you know to to zoom in on that a little bit more do you feel the same kind of thing when there's you know three and a half minutes remaining in the super bowl against the patriots again and and you need eli to put together a drive to go down the field was was that a moment where even at the time with everything going on you're thinking okay we've done this before let's go win another super bowl exactly been there done that and i i turn around i've got the same guy behind me so, um, you know, it's like another. I mean, you, that throw to Manningham, you can't put it any better. Mario makes a great grab, right? It's just uh, scripted very similar. And, you know, again, the confidence. We were very confident in 07, you know, off the charts, you know, in 2011. 
Yeah. And, and um, you know, there's actually a quote from you in this in the Super Bowl book I referenced. It might have been something you said in the post game, but your quote was, um, you know, you're speaking about you know, trying to beat the Patriots again and, and this team that, you know, has sort of a, a dynasty kind of element to it. And you said, Coach Coughlin had said prior to the game that the only way you earn New England's respect is by being physical with them. And every time we play them, it's a four-quarter game, a physical game, yep. and this was no different. Yep. And, you know, again, a, a wide receiver making a catch is not the most physical play, but for Manningham to be able to, to hold on and maintain the concentration between two guys and while he's getting hit and while he's going down to me that's kind of like emblematic of your quote in a certain way that you know a lesser team or lesser player might have dropped that ball and that's not the mental toughness you need to to beat the Patriots but for everything from the throw to the catch to go right it seems like that's you know sort of embodying what you were saying about you know beating a New England team yeah absolutely and you gotta go you have to go take it from them right I mean they're they are not going to beat themselves and uh you know or make anything easy on you have to go take it from them when um, when you guys won a second one, how would you sort of compare the feeling of eleven to to seven from an emotional standpoint for you and the team? Uh, I mean, from an emotional standpoint, you know, I was a little bit older and I having gone through it the first time where everything went by, I allowed it to go by so fast. You know, on the field, I I, I slowed it down, um, and there was a personal, more of a personal touch to it because I had two boys that were there and um, you know they came on the field they uh, they remember everything to this day so that to me is I mean, how can you beat that right I mean I was fortunate to, to play where my kids saw me in the Super Bowl and they were there and watched and celebrated on the field and you know still gives me goosebumps every time I talk about it so you know that's that's the difference and that's what um, you know beating perfection or stopping perfection was awesome but um, you know winning again and just savoring every second of it with uh, my wife and, and two of my four kids, like I said. But the more important thing is that they remember it. Um, it can't be any can't be any better for me. You know, was there a sense of pride for you too in in seeing um, and contributing to? you know, two Super Bowl victories for your father-in-law? Again, I mean, there's not a lot of guys that have multiple Super Bowls, and to do it and, and beat New England twice, Brady twice, everybody knows how hard it is to do that. But, you know, for all the success that Tom had in Jacksonville without, you know, winning a Super Bowl and then to go to New York and do it twice, were you? was there a sense of pride doing it for him too? Yeah, I mean, I love the guy. So, I mean, I wanted to do everything I could to help him and, uh, and help the team and, um, yeah, I love, I love, I love the Giants organization, you know, uh, so there were, there were many things, but yeah, I mean, Tom's a Hall of Fame coach, uh, yeah, but everyone's measured by, by the Super Bowls, right? So to, to stamp him with, uh, two head coaching Super Bowls to ensure him a spot in Canton, um, yes, yeah, is, is very special and I'm just proud that I was able to help. Did you know at that point in time that you wanted to stick around the game and you know eventually try and go into scouting like you did with Jacksonville? No, I had no idea. Um, you know, I was I knew I was going to take time off just from you know I'd like to I picked the brains of a couple older veterans you know who I won't name but just yeah you know, they basically advised me not to just jump into something right take take some time off emotionally gather yourself you know figure out which direction you want to go in. Um, some like to go in a different direction, right? Learn something new, you know, kind of identify themselves as others, other, something other than a football guy. I thought about that, met with different companies, um, 
but it, it boiled down to me that I just can't picture my life without the game. Um, so that, that that's what made it easy for me. So I, I waited uh, a couple of years, and when the right opportunity came, Jacksonville was great. They allowed me to do a lot of work um, from home. You know, I traveled a bunch, but I was able to to still coach my kids and not miss anything at home. And that that was what uh, even to this day, if I t- if I take another job. It's got to be with uh, some parameters that uh, I'm upholding my kids because for so long it was about me, right? My schedule, what was, uh, but now it's, it's it's truly all about them. But uh, hopefully, I can work something out and find uh, find someone else to to work for. Yeah, that's that's I think the biggest thing that I hear from coaches who are you know in their 50s, 60s, and older now is that you know when when you ask them is there anything that you would do differently they they all say spend more time with your family because it's so easy to get wrapped up in in the hours and the weeks and the months and and the year round nature of the of the sport that I can I can certainly understand that um, you know do you think that yeah, yeah. you know having some experience on the scouting side and then obviously you've you've coached at the youth level that's not like college or the NFL but would coaching interest you at all down the road when your when your kids are grown? Absolutely, absolutely. Um, I think I would enjoy that a lot. Yeah, I think I love football. I love I miss like I miss the, the competition. Yeah, that competitive fire is still there. Um, you know, being on the sideline as a coach would be a different animal. So um, yeah, I know that entails a lot of hours and a lot of uh, you know patience. Yeah, depending on what what level we're talking about coaching. But um, I'm open to all opportunities, and uh, yeah, we'll, we'll see what comes of it uh, the next few months. It's, that's obviously going to be a different, different fall playing ahead of us. So um, you know, whether I'm just coaching peewee football or if, I'm, if there's no football, I'll be working on my terrible golf game. So, but either way, I'll be happy. That, that, that's been the benefit of this pandemic. Listen, there's been so much uh, pandemic has been terrible in so many ways. The positive side is. Allowed us as a family, my family, to slow things down um, from our busy schedules with the kids and all their sports and activities. We eliminated those, and we really got a chance to kind of hunker at home and, uh, and enjoy some solid family time. Which honestly, we hadn't had a family dinner together in in months because you go from football season to basketball season, and I coach both. I mean, it's like staggered dinners. So for you know, from going to that to every night you're eating dinner together was. Uh, it's actually nice, you know. I, I feel bad saying that because of what's going on around the world, but it was sure. uh, it was nice to have that. No, I can understand. I can understand. You know, you guys, you guys have such a, a regimented life for so many years in the league that it's hard to to have that balance. And then when you when you get a chance to do it, even if it is under some some circumstances where people are less fortunate, then you know you can still you can still take advantage of of those opportunities and 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 cherish what you have yep. with your wife and kids. So you know that's awesome. And and you know I got one last question for you. And I know that you know sure. I could hear it in your voice talking throughout this conversation, but I, I kind of had a anyway that you know you still had a tremendous amount of respect and, and adoration for the Giants organization so you know if the season happens this fall and and you know assuming you know knock on wood that things go well for the league what are you interested in seeing from the Joe Judge era and and what is it about you know the Giants that you hope to see this fall I think what everyone wants to see I think everyone wants to see just a better product um you know I want to and you know I want them to do well you know even as a employee of the Jaguars the past four years. I mean, I, I want the Giants to do well. I mean, I, I, there's too many memories there, too many good times, too many, too much blood, sweat, 
yeah, fears, all that stuff, all that stuff, right? I mean, I, I love the Giants organization; it always will. So I, I just, I hope they have success. And you know, um, but as an offensive lineman, I, I want that unit to get back to what we established, what we made that unit. You know, like, um, you know, we built a reputation, and that was something that you know, Hera, Deal, all of us, Booth, McKenzie, Soiber, I mean, we all took pride in what we what we made that offensive line, and. Uh, I think they have some pieces there that can kind of get it back to what it was, and that's that's what I'll be looking for. I'll be looking for those guys up front to, you know, to be that physical dominating unit, um, you know, always available and always accountable, and you know what you're going to get in, you know, week in and week out from from that group. You know, it's guys that just want to play football, are proud of the uniform they're wearing. Absolutely. Absolutely. And and Chris, I can't thank you enough for taking some time to, to chat with me. It was awesome to hear some of your stories and gain some insight into some, some championship teams. I really appreciate that. And, uh, you know, hopefully we can see you around the game again, because, you know, I, again, just from listening to you, I can tell the, the passion and respect you have for the game. So it'd be fun to, to see you in another scouting or coaching role uh, down the road. But again, thank you so much for the time, Chris. Thank you very much. I appreciate it. Have a good day. So there you have it, a conversation with former Giants right guard Chris Snee. It was really interesting to hear him talk about sort of the mental approach and mindset that both of those Super Bowl winning teams had for the Giants because neither one had traditionally dominant regular seasons. And so they came into the playoffs as wildcard teams both times, but it shows that if you have the right momentum and if you have a team that's peaking at the right time and believes in itself and has a quarterback who can win in the fourth quarter, then that's a that's a recipe for success just about any time of year in the NFL. And uh, it was it was pretty cool to hear him talk about the way that they sort of blocked out things related to the Patriots, who you know were receiving a lot of attention and, and a lot of hype given their uh, their status as a as a dynasty under Bill Belichick and with Tom Brady at quarterback. So hopefully you guys enjoyed hearing some of those stories as well. And uh, I know that a lot of you have listened to our past episodes, but if you haven't checked out any of those yet, please do so. We've got some recent episodes with Leroy Butler, Wade Phillips, Scott Burrell, Keenan McCardell, Brian Windhorst, Jim Nagy, Marvin Lewis, Casey Hayward, Greg Bishop, and Sage Rosenfels, among others. And all episodes of this podcast are available on iTunes, SoundCloud, Stitcher, Google Play, Apple Podcasts, Spotify, and just about anywhere else you listen to shows. And as always, if you're listening on an Apple device, we encourage you to leave a star rating, preferably five stars if you like the show, and maybe a comment, because the more action we get in terms of reviews and comments, the more the algorithms in the Apple iTunes store act in our favor, and that leads to more exposure and makes it easier for me to book some interesting guests. So until the next episode of this podcast, I hope you guys have a terrific rest of your day a terrific rest of your week, and I will talk to you again soon.